Welcome to Books, Baby, the podcast where we're reading the rainbow and the occasional white straight man. Content warning. This episode of Books Baby contains discussion of swearing, violence, war, murder, homophobia, colonisation, animal death, ableism, suicide, police brutality, infidelity and physical violence, and also contains spoilers about the plot of the novel we're discussing. Welcome to Books Baby, the podcast where we read the rainbow and the occasional straight white man. As always, I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm joined by Allo, Bev, and Ian. This week, we're discussing The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida by Shihan Karun Atalaka, which actually won the Booker Prize this year. So I wanted to ask everybody, what is your relationship to book prizes? Do you read them? Do you not read them? What do you do? Allo, did you want to start? I love any award ceremony i love the novel prize and i tend to read or i'm trying to read at least one book from each novel prize literature novel prize winner so far i've done well this year's uh i haven't read it but yeah that's basically mine and the other ones that i follow is normally the the shop books or like goodread have like their yearly awards and i tend to get them but i feel like those are more people voting for the ones that they like so i'm also more keen on skipping those ones if i feel like oh that's like the tiktok book rather than someone who actually <laughs> took the time to read and review that the, the book that's fair enough I'd say I'm pretty similar in that in terms of I'll look at Goodreads, but I sort of just push it away and go, no thanks. Bev, what do you like to do? Um, I'm enjoying the amount of TikTok and Goodreads slander on this podcast. <laughs> really, <laughs> really kicking in the nuts there. I go usually uh, read, I think, re- award-winning books because I had a couple of bad experiences with the Booker Prize, actually, which were just terribly boring and a bit up themselves. So I was very glad about this year's uh, prize winner, which was pretty good. The ones that I usually keep an eye out for are the Stella Prize. That's the one that's based in Australia. And that's usually a pretty good list of all the great sort of odd Oslid books that we I would have missed in the year. The other one that I kind of keep an eye on is actually the Hugo Awards, which is the uh, lit award for the best science fiction or fantasy. I don't normally read a lot of that so it's just good to know what's hot in that world and sometimes I might pick it up if I feel like I have the time to devote myself to a seven book epic series that spans across <laughs> centuries. Sounds good. Ian, what about you? I agree with Bev. It's a good good way of keeping your eye on all the different um, books that come out because there's so many books it's so hard to keep track of them all. But for me, I think the Booker is my favourite. Years ago before Instagram was even a thing, I think um, the Booker Prize was a way for me to just sort of know what books were out there that were seen to be quality books and i'd try and read a few the ones that appealed to me from their synopsis um and most of my favorite books are actually booker prize winners but i agree with bev like i've read some really boring ones as well <laughs> but yeah so lately i've been reading the whole booker prize short list i wouldn't go so far as to do the whole long list but i like doing the short list and i quite like on instagram there's a lot of chat around it and you can um 
So just be involved in the community or reading those books at the same time. I think that's a great thing about the Booker Prize rather than the Nobel Prize, which is just, it's for the work of a writer rather than a specific novel or title. And I think that's a bit of what I like about the Booker Prize is like you have lots of options from different authors. You might not like the, the winner, but you get to discover new authors or titles along the way while you find out who's the winner. It's true. I guess there's pros and cons because sometimes I feel like someone wins the Booker Prize more because their last book was really good. Like, you know, they, mm. they deserve it because they've been putting out so many good books and then they win it for one that's, I don't want to say Margaret Atwood, but I will. Um, <laughs> <laughs> whereas with the Nobel, it is for their overall work, but um, they do have to still be alive. So sometimes I think people miss out because they just die a bit young, you know, haven't quite got to that point where is this for the Nobel? <laughs> or there's yeah, the, the Nobel. controversy so, with yeah, Murakami. It has to be a living it. author to win the Nobel. Oh, yeah. interesting. And, and there's the controversy with Murakami that every year, every every Murakami fan thinks it's the year that he's going to win. <laughs> and yet another year passes and he doesn't win the, the Nobel oh, Prize. I don't think he's ever going to, honestly. Like, well, he's written I'm, the same yeah, 20 times, hasn't he? Yeah, there's only so many Ouch. times to Sorry, write Murakami something. fans. <laughs> can edit that bit out later. Yeah, what about no, you, I Jamie? Like, I don't keep an eye specifically on any, but I do always like to eventually look at, long after it's been announced, the Women's Prize in Literature every year. <laughs> I'm hopeless yeah. with like dates for these awards because I just forget because they're all over the year. Yeah. But um, I do like the Women's Prize in Literature. A lot of it is UK-based, but I do find a lot more uh, women and non-binary authors from that mm. that I may not have seen previously, which is good. The Booker Prize, I have a weird relationship with because I it's a love-hate relationship. Um, We'll get to that later. But yeah. I've actually read more Booker-winning and Booker-nominated books than I actually thought I had so that was interesting but I don't always read them because they're on the list but yeah I don't know I'm not exactly swayed by the awards but I do like it for the exposure to authors I wouldn't have looked at mm. or heard of honestly shout out to the people who do read the long list and the short list so that includes you Ian I know yes Daryl the sweet books I think that's his handle who read who just finished the national book awards which is an American literary prize he also read all of the Booker. I don't think my opinion aligns with him sometimes, but it's great to know what he thinks about the entire list and his rankings. And there's a little bit of like a game going. I think every year there is a um, Booker Prize ranking sort of competition or thing. That's yeah, Sheree books this well. year. Yeah, uh, that's runs right. that poll every year. Bookstagram reads the Booker. Yeah, yeah. That's always really interesting to follow, even though I've no intention of reading the rest of the long list. I don't know how people managed to, maybe they're not in Australia where we get the books so far behind. It's really hard. Like I tried to read the Booker International Prize shortlist this year and I just couldn't get the books on time. Uh, it was really difficult. But I guess I, I'm not an e-reader. If, if I had a Kindle or something, I'd probably be able to do it mm. much more easily. Yeah. But yeah, I like the physical books. I do want to give it a go next year. Set my eyes shorter on the shortlist instead, but maybe the international one is more up my alley than just yeah. the Booker. But we'll see what's nominated. So I think it would be because you, mm. you like a lot of literature and translation and it's a really good way to get to know things that you haven't heard Different. of before. Exactly. Although this year's one was really interesting with all the different like countries and perspectives nominated so I do plan to read quite a few of this year's shortlist at least didn't get to it in time because I had uni but <laughs> yeah. we'll see how I go Some background on the Booker Prize. So if you're like us and you never really felt the need to go Google the Booker Prize because you only need to know so much about it, I've got you covered with a little bit of background. So if anyone was interested in the submissions process, only publishers, not individual authors, can submit entries. 
So all works must have been published in English for the main Booker Prize and in any language, but I think they have to be translated for the international prize. Has to have been published in the UK and Ireland between between the 1st of May 2022 and the 30th of April 2023 to be considered for the international prize for just the Booker Prize, um, not the international one. It's 1st of October 2022 to 30th of September 2023. So quite a big, like you obviously get a whole year window. Um, so it is interesting. And it should be noted that they don't actually have to be published at the time they are submitted. Did find out that a few of them were yet to be published or were published at the very end of that window. So the Booker Prize like submissions were a lot of draft. As for the judging panel, so it does change every year. Usually it contains people at the top of their field. So think things like cultural historians, academics, um, English professors, some novelists, um, and then poets and professors as well. And they're usually submitted um, through like their own selection process each year. So the judges usually compile a long list of 12 to 13 books known as the Book a Dozen. And from this, a short list of six books are chosen for the, um, the panellists. If you could would you compare this to things like the Women's Prize for Fiction, Miles Franklin, or the Stellar Award, the latter two are Australian, they're all quite similar in terms of they obviously give you a whole year to be published in. Their panels are chosen the same way. It's obviously slightly different how they select their books um, for like long list, short lists and everything in between, but seem to follow a pretty similar pattern. So the Booker is the same as the other awards, just slightly different. Um, I did find it interesting the Australian awards usually reward more money than the Booker does. So interesting. And that is your little quick background on the Booker Prize. <laughs> this episode, we're discussing The Seven Moons of Molly Almeida by Shihan Karina Tilaka. So the book synopsis says it is set in Colum Colombo, 1990. Molly Almeida, war photographer, gambler and closet queen has woken up dead in what seems like a celestial visa office his dismembered body is sinking in the serene Bira lake and he has no idea who killed him in a country where squads are settled by death squads suicide bombers and hired goons the list of suspects is depressingly long as the ghouls and ghosts with grudges who cluster around can attest but even in the afterlife time is running out for marley he has seven moons to contact the man and woman he loves most and lead them to the photos that will rock Sri Lanka. So, what do we all think of the book? I absolutely loved it. Yeah. I'm not agree. afraid to say that it's probably the best book that I've read this year. Wow. And because it's November, I'm mm. I'm just probably going to say it's, it. it's the best. Yeah, calling <laughs> it the best book that I've read this year. It was not my favourite from the shortlist. I did really like Claire Keegan's book. I, I love that so much because I'm just a sucker for a really short, concise book with so much going on within it. And that was sort of 100 pages of joy, whereas this was a bit more rambling. It was sprawling, but it was still so amazing. And yeah, it's definitely going to be on my, my favourites of the year. Yeah, I've, I've read, I did, nothing has stood out for me this year until I read this book. I think it's a combination of it being some of my favourite things, which is personification of an afterlife, like a tax office. I love it when the afterlife is <laughs> bureaucratic. That's one of my favourite tropes. It's a good view of um, historical conflict that, was refreshing i read another book about it um this year a passage north which was also about the shark and conflict but i thought that was super navel gazy whereas this one felt alive and crackling um this was so much more vivid than yeah yes 
it is I, I liked funny. our passage north too but it was like you say it was very navel gazing <laughs> yeah mm, yeah it's very internal yeah this book was you know funny irreverent the protagonist was refreshing he's gay and that features prominently in the book and I just thought it was such a great perspective to pick up for a conflict that's run for so many years and told in a way that's so different yeah and uh, but uh, talking about the gay thing I like that yeah. it was a very important part of the character but didn't define the mm. character at all like yeah you could take that away from the character mm. and the novel could still work like might be different um yeah I don't know. I disagree because I think if he was a marginalized person in a war and, and he was Tamil as well. And I felt like those, not Tamil, was he Tamil? Yes, he was. Those yeah. intersecting characteristics gave him, gave us a unique portrait of the war that you wouldn't have otherwise. I feel like, and I haven't read a lot, a lot about this, but I feel, you know, a passage not was, was like a, he was a straight dude <laughs> and talking yeah. about, you know, the woman in his life. But um, I think, it's quite deliberate to be those two identities and an observer as well, the way that he would have cut through those war camps and the kinds of environments that he was being dropped into. I think it gave us access to things that wouldn't have otherwise been possible if he wasn't gay, actually. It's a good thing. I, can, I felt like that, that was a characteristic while I was reading the novel, didn't play like a big weight on on mm. that. But now that what hearing what you say, that gives a new perspective to this. I think we have to, you know, deal with the elephant in the room, which is Jamie. What did you think? But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what is not the first time will not be the last time I say this. Um, it wasn't my cup of tea, but I still enjoyed it to a degree in terms of, as we were saying, the character is quite funny. I did like um, sort of his viewpoints and comments on things I got to like the middle of the book where there's a bit of a slump and it just absolutely ended it for me but the writing was nice like I felt like the story was still quite nice from what I read it just went over my head a little bit with the so for this book um you do need a lot of knowledge or research about the Sri Lankan conflict um especially from 1990 but also looking at like how it's still um, ongoing to a degree and resurfacing today I didn't have that knowledge and I did look it up like a little bit throughout but but by that point I was a bit too confused but yeah it wasn't my cup of tea um I'm not a big fan of like the afterlife and everything but I'm not knocking the book it's still I think I'll come back to it at some point when I'm in the mood for it because I'm such a mood reader so like if mm. I'm not in the mood and it's getting too confusing. I'm like, it's too much. There's, there's no point go, keep going. I'll just come back to it. So I would say yeah. that I think this book is is best read quickly. Like, I don't <laughs> think you want to put it down um, and have a busy week and try and come back to it next weekend because you will be a bit like, who who are these characters and what's happening? Because yeah. it's a bit chaotic. And I think I that was a bit of my issue. Think, three days and it just, there was no time to stop and sort of question any of these things and go and do research. It just, yeah, flowed on. Um, as the chaos it was. I think if I read it again, I'll make sure I have like a few days clear and just sit down and go for it. Whereas when I was trying to read it, I did about half the book over a week and that was too long in between. And I did yeah. completely the opposite that you did, Jamie. I had no knowledge of the Sri Lankan conflict, <laughs> but I dived into the book 
and the book made me get interested in the Sri Lankan conflict. And once the book finished, I did a little bit of research to make sure I understood it correctly. That worked for me. And I, I but I also understand that reading is a very subjective experience and, and activity. So it's good to have a disagreement, I think. <laughs> we do disagree. I think he did something really clever, Shehan, in the beginning of the book. I think he's got a little expert, which is that's a guide to different parties. I don't know if you guys remember. Yeah, that was really the useful. war. And I actually yeah. bookmarked that because I had to go yeah. back because there were so many acronyms. <laughs> There's and so many acronyms. I kept forgetting what their motif in the war was as well. And that like it was like a it was like a shorthand or like it was like spark notes for the Sri Lankan war for journalists that he had put yeah. in. <laughs> and he even used a different font way. so it was easy to find yes. when you wanted to flip yeah. back to it. It was really good. Yeah. Fair enough. Well we've all said our thing about it. So the Sri Lankan conflict. Bev did Bev, did you want to take um the discussion on the background of the book? Oh yes. Okay, this is going to be a gross simplification of a 20-something odd year war, but the basis of this book is set in the 90s, which is kind of right in the middle of the Sri Lankan civil war that began in 1983 and ended in 2009. So just for context, Sri Lanka was sort of colonised by various parties, but the latest one was from the British Empire and they gained independence in 1948. After gaining independence, so Sinhalese, which is one of the major groups in the novel and in Sri Lanka itself and um, the kind of the majority, I guess, in that country was recognised as the sole official language of the nation. So they were, I guess you could say, in power, which is important for the novel because in 1983, what it sparked a insurgency by what you might have heard of this before, but the Tamil Tigers or the LTTE, Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam. So they were the ones who started the um, long conflict because they wanted to create an independent Tamil state in the northeast of the island because there was discrimination, violent prosecution of the Sinhalese against um, Tamil people. And reportedly a lot of it was perpetrated by the actual Sri Lankan government. So it was a very long, it was a very bloody war, estimated of like 80 to 100,000 deaths by the United Nations. And the Sri Lankan state itself has been heavily criticised for violating human rights. So our protagonist is sort of kind of right in the middle of this, you know, he gets killed, which is where most of this book takes place in the afterlife. And he is Tamil which gives him sort of a unique position in the entire war itself, um, gains a lot of access to like Sinhalese places, etc. So yeah, that's like the little one-on-one on the Sri Lankan Civil War, hopefully done it justice. Thank you for that overview. Um, obviously, if anyone wants to know more, feel free to go Googling uh, once more beyond the little brief overview Bev has given. So we mentioned the afterlife a lot, and I think obviously it is quite important to the novel, um, Alo, did you want to talk about the afterlife in the novel? Yeah, I found that was one of the things I connected the most about with the novel. I, I love how this novel explores the idea of death and afterlife in a very non-religious way, but at the same time bringing up all the religious, uh, not only that um, Sri Lanka has, but also Catholicism or Christian Christianism and the, the way that I like how it explores afterlife, it's how it really reflects the life as we know it and as like Beb, Beb was saying at the beginning of, of 
the discussion how bureaucratic the afterlife or arriving at the afterlife is and all the process that you need to go through to finally get into the light or reject the light. So I, I found that funny. I found that very easy to relate to. And it sort of brings into the idea that I grew up, I grew up in a Catholic country. And even though that I'm, I'm not a religious person or I don't follow any religious, you grow with all these ideas, especially that, that one that God created a humankind to his image and then reading this afterlife very similar to life on earth i found that hilarious and like a very good way in, in yeah it was hilarious can i jump in there and read a quote please yes, yes, yes. i just love this please. quote. please um and it relates to what you were saying so you want to ask the universe what everyone else wants to ask the universe why are we born why do we die why anything has to be and all the universe has to say in reply is, I don't know, asshole, stop asking. Yeah, I, I love that. <laughs> and it, so funny. And I feel like it's sort of that quote summarizes a bit of this idea of people believing that after once you're dead, you're going to arrive to the paradise or this amazing life. And then you suddenly arrive to this very chaotic place that it's sort of just a, con a continuation of what you left behind in life. It's sort of an in-between place, isn't it? It's very clever that he doesn't actually ever answer any questions about what does happen after the in-between so that you're not going to offend any sort of any kind of religion, I suppose. You could think that what happens later is whatever you believe in personally or what your religion believes in. But the book is set in this in-between, between life and between whatever happens next. This idea of the in-between is something that it's present in all religions. Like it, it might be called the, with different names, but I think most of people who believe that something happens once we die, even I guess atheists, we all believe that there's like just this moment in between while we died and we arrived the next stage, I want to say. Yeah, and I think the afterlife in between trope has been that, like Hollywood has done a couple of these and I think the most not notable one is The Good Place, if you guys have watched that. Yeah. And it's similar yeah. to this in terms of like, it's quite funny, it's like, you know, really bureaucratic. And yeah. if you go a bit further, um, I grew up loving like Douglas Adam novels, so... Mm. Hitchhiker's Guide to Universe, it reminded me of that a little bit, the sort of British sensibility of like, it doesn't matter how far you go in the universe, everyone kind of comes to the same conclusion, it's going to be admin, it's going to be paperwork, you're going to have to do things that you don't want to do, and there'll be people telling you to do things that you don't want to do. What I love about this one specifically is how it manages to interweave the Sri Lankan bureaucracy to it. So the aunties yeah. and the uncles manning it, the um the myths that are kind of put into it, it becomes a little bit more uh, mundane as well with this one, but also makes it feel a lot more real and alive uh, for a place where the dead go. <laughs> and, and I feel like it, it, it's a great thing in which the author also helps to build up the story and also the confusion that the mm. character feels when he discovers that he's dead, but doesn't know how he died, uh, when he died. Yeah, I, I like that because yeah. you, you sort of to ar arrive to this calm or place that wouldn't work as, as well as it works when you arrive to a chaotic place. Yeah, you kind of walk in at the start of the novel halfway through something, don't you? He doesn't really know what's going on. You don't really know what's going on, but it mm. is all just chaos. But I like the way that this device creates tension through the novel too, mm. that he doesn't know who killed him. Um, and so the, the novel is a course of finding that. So there's a bit of a whodunit, uh, but there's also there's options for him. You know, he can choose to to become a demon or he can choose to go to the what do they call it? The light. But it, it was very, very well done. 
it just kept kept the pages turning for me. So obviously war is another main element of the book. Um, Ian, you spoke a little bit about it before. Did you want to expand a bit further about the war's importance in the book? I think, I mean, I guess the war is so important in the book because of the way that Marley is a photographer and he's made it his sort of life goal to photograph atrocities and document them. It's such a part of his personality. And that's one of the reasons he has trouble moving on into the light. He wants to make sure that his photographs are saved and can do what he wants them to do to bring people to justice. But I think that the overall theme of war in this novel is is more about the futility of it, the way that it's sort of, you know, there's all these arms dealers coming into the country. They're selling weapons from all over the world. And it's really just making people rich, isn't it? They're not solving any problems. They're creating more problems. He says that Tamil bodies look very much the same as Sinhalese bodies, despite, you know, the propaganda that you would read otherwise and it just kind of for me it just it's sad it shows that powerful people are going to keep doing you know keep ruining other people's lives to maintain their own power to maintain their own wealth but of course it's all done in a much funnier way than what i just said and i also think the way in which it talks about war it, it's sort of a, an ego conflict all the involved parts even mali their ego comes into play like even th he thinking that he can resolve the conflict or change the course of the conflict by photographing shows so much how the ego is talking rather than actually understanding the conflict or being part of the conflict affecting you. I don't know what you think about that. I think it's a really interesting point you make about the ego, Allo, about the egos kind of fighting over each other of who wants to win. Because Mali, as a the photographer, there is a part of him that he mentions, like, what is the, you know, what is the photo photograph that will bring down this wall? much like how in the Vietnam War yes. he mentioned the, the, you know, the he famous Napalm yeah. you know stops the war and uh, it's um apart from being futile I think it's also I think whether it's Mali or whether it's author so like a deeply cynical and angry novel about war as well mm. he kind of goes well you know the reason why even if I did capture like a Napalm girl shot this war won't kind of end because there hasn't been like major investment into this war like how the americans invested into actually starting the war in vietnam or these you know other conflicts where people had like money money poured into started so they were all profiting everyone was profiting off crimes being done but just because they didn't have a vested national interest like sri lanka wasn't like an international interest for them to achieve any of their own goals in the end nobody really cared about the work that you did it and the way that the way that the novel is told like it's um because, like it's so funny and some of it's like laugh out loud observation is because i think um if you can't if you can't laugh at it you're gonna cry yeah. and yeah. he mentions you know sri lanka has the highest suicide rate in the world like why is it like at that point they're trying to figure out why it was because like oh well if you <laughs> if you if you're not able to like end it with a dark joke you will end it by throwing yourself off a building uh, it was so so interesting how so many of the ghosts i mean because it's said in the afterlife and mm -hmm. then all these ghosts that he's meeting um, you know, there's so many people who've been slaughtered, massacred. There's people who are suicides and they're all still hanging around. And there's that scene or that sequence where the city is shut down for a day so that they can mm. just get all the corpses out of cold storage and throw them in an incinerator without people noticing. Like, it's pretty gruesome, isn't it? But that's that's what was happening. It, it brings it to, it makes it feel more more alive because Mali is actually meeting these victims mm. in their afterlife and in their 
the wandering. Yes, and and I feel like it, it's also a little bit of he has a purpose to find out how he died and who killed him, and in trying to fulfill that answer and his main goal, which I I found very clever that even after he has died, he wants his pictures to be published and trying to speak to his friends in life so they publish the pictures that will end of the war that was very clever fr- from the author that engaged me as, as a reader i wanted to know mm. if he could actually speak with his friends and yeah. how he was gonna solve that but i was also very interested in finding out who killed him because like in any war i guess and being a journalist photographer you could see that lots of people wanted him dead so yeah, it that, could have been anyone yeah, it could have been anyone. Yeah, I was really invested in the friends as well. Like the exploration mm. of their friendship was great. You know, that the straight straight girl that loves the or is she straight, I don't know. I think she's the bi lesbian. girl. Or bi? I'm but not she's sure. well, yeah. she's got a crush on him, doesn't she? She wanted yeah, she wanted to be with Marley and then he was sort of leaving her bedroom at night and going to the other boys' room and mm-hmm. um Dee Dee, yes. Yeah. Um that whole little threesome thing they have going on mm. like yeah it was just really interesting to read about i cared about all of them i wanted them all to come out of it well even knowing that marley wasn't going to but i wanted the others to survive i suppose yeah um, there was a lot of heart in that there was like an unexpected scene i think towards the end or two sets in the book i can't remember where he finally figures out or one of the people tells him how he can enter their dreams yes. and yes like a really important bit of information that entire sequence I don't know, it was really well done, but I was quite touched with it. And I think it was because, um, I don't know, it's like a strength of connection that you have with friends. You know, sometimes you want to believe that some of your friendship transcends consciousness or transcends the afterlife. And I yeah. think it was right after some really dark uh, portrayals of what was happening in the war. I think he goes to like a torture, what they call it, a palace, the torture palace. Yes. And it's like level and level and level after torture. So that was like a nice break scene in in it as well and really painted a picture of the intensity of that friendship in the midst of like war essentially (laughs) i love that that scene because i want to believe that that can happen when a loved one dies i was very moved by that scene because i actually have a pact with my mom in which whoever Mm. dies first has to come to visit the other in dreams or send Mm. a sign that they're okay in the afterlife so that was for me was like Mm. yes that that's how death should should be and showed yeah I felt like it was a very beautiful way in which the author showed how their relationship, how strong their relationship was without yeah. having to say this is a very strong relationship, especially because yes. through the novel, I felt like, and it's something that we're probably going to discuss a bit further, how slow Mali is and how much he takes advantage of the feelings uh, Jackie has towards him. Mm. But with this scene, I felt like you realize how beautiful and how strong their their friendship was i mean mali is is awful he's an awful person but love him he's so selfish he's like what does he describe himself as like a gambler a lover um a liar i I forget what else and that's how he begins i knew i knew from the moment when 
we I read that at the beginning of the novel. I think I was like, oh yes, this is the book yeah. for me. <laughs> yes, so did I, I. I I was so like I I was so into Mali. Like I was like yes. But I felt so bad for for his boyfriend who、uh, you know is、yes. forever waiting at home and Mali's off you know screwing the Kodak boy in the in the photography studio or whatever. At one point he has this list of all the guys that he's hooked up with and、yes. all of all of his boyfriend's friends from the basketball team are on there and stuff. <laughs> My, oh my god, he really is a slut. But at the, like, you just can't help but love him, can you? No. Well, he was larger than life. I mean,、yeah. the way that、um, it was like seeing how other people perceived him, like apart from his friendships, even the people that he was working for. And when he dies, it's like he might have just, you know, fucked off somewhere else. And you know, Mali, you know how Mali is.、Uh, yeah. That it's like it's that friend, that friend that you bring into your life because. You know what is life without a little sense of like danger or adventure, and you forgive them because、yeah. even though they push their boundaries, what they bring back is so much more kind of fun and like out of bounds from what you would normally do. But in your life is a bit better that that you kind of put up with their little shittiness. <laughs> I feel like you're talking、yeah. from experience here, Bev. I don't kind of think I don't know. My I have a pretty like my friends are great. I don't have a friend like that. So, but I've watched enough. Shows right, like, um, <laughs> yeah. I was saying it's like is that he's like he's a flea back character. He is、yeah. unhinged woman. He is、um, what else is there、uh, in Please Like Me? Have you guys seen that series? Oh yes, yeah. Yeah, he's he's that、um, Josh Thomas's character. It's just profoundly unlikable. <laughs>、um, yeah, we still love him. <laughs> And I think it has to do with with the fact that we've always, at some point in our lives, we felt unlikable. And that's probably, or at least, not. It's not that you necessarily are unlikable, or we haven't been unlikable. But while we're discovering ourselves and who we are, there's a point where one questions their own selves. And I, I, at least, I feel like that's how I connected with with Mali. Like I felt like he was a guy trying to figure out who he was and what was his legacy, and how can he transcend、mm-hmm. beyond death. And、yeah. that sort of wage more than all the the flaws that he he had. He wasn't perfect. He was brave. He was, he, was, he was the kind of guy who he's not scared to do things that people are going to dislike. He、mm. would just go and do what he wanted to do, and screw the consequences, basically.、Mm. Um, which takes a lot of bravery. Yes, I think a lot of people would like to be more like that. Yeah, he I, was I, a I, he was a main character. <laughs> Empty, very much main character energy. <laughs> I think it's interesting that you say Alo that it was about you know Mali finding himself and trying to figure out who he was and still being loved by people around him because one of the main things that I found a lot from this novel as well is you know Sri Lanka being a former colony of the British Empire. A lot of the book kind of deals with and a lot of the conversation kind of deals with. What it meant to be colonized and whose fault the conflict was, and there was a lot of self-help hatred to it. There is a passage in the、um, paragraphs, a conversation. Can't remember with it. It's a it's between a dead priest and Mali, and I think Mali asks, "Who screwed us? Who screwed us?" and It is your favorite one, Ian. You know the Portuguese assumed a missionary position. The Dutch took us from behind. By the time the Brits came along, we're already on our knees with our hands behind our backs and our mouths open. <laughs> and Miley goes, "I'm glad we were colonized by the British."、Yeah. 
And then the priest goes, better than being slaughtered by the French or enslaved by the Belgians or gassed by the Germans or raped by the Spaniards. Uh, and then they go, you know, sometimes when I think of the mess this country is in, I think it might be better to let the Chinese or the Japanese buy us over, which sort of is a continuing thing with them. China kind of ransoming Sri Lanka's ports at the moment. And they have this kind of back and forth for a little bit, like whose fault is it? Is it because of our colonizers? And it kind of ends the chapter with um a demon goes, you know, you know, at the end of the day, I think we have fucked it up all by ourselves. And I don't know about you, maybe it's a long line to draw, but I think with Mali and the way that he kind of is kind of self-destructive is a little bit of a reflection of Sri Lanka itself. They are as a people like as a country view themselves as self-destructive and maybe a lot of that comes from trying to heal from being colonized and it's a great portrayal of the way that it's been done in the book Alo, I think you mentioned um something similar that kind of happened in Mexico do you want to expand a little bit on that yeah like I feel um while I was reading this and particular that passage is I I was thinking like uh, Mexico was colonized by the Spaniards and mm. my idea was like it used to be like these big explorers who were trying to originally find a new road to India because the Arabs have closed the, the normal way from Europe to get into India and how things turned out very similar in Mexico. Like I, I did see lots of similarities in Sri Lankan culture and Mexican culture in terms of bureaucracy corruption and people trying to play the victim like oh this is mm. the consequence of the past 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 and then when it says uh maybe we fucked ourselves i i thought like oh maybe it is the same in mexico like it's <laughs> just because living a comfortable life it's kind of easy or I don't want to say easy because there's lots of people who, who obviously don't have an easy life. But for people in power, it's just so easy to be corrupt that and mm. Mexican society doesn't actually do much to change that. That I, I connected with that part as well. And I felt there was a similarity there. I wonder if it's partly that, you know, when you've been colonized and everything that's sort of good about your country is being taken, mm. you know, by an invading force. And then the culture becomes such that you just try to take what you can, which leads to this corruption. And even once the colonizers have left, you're left with this chaotic system of people in power trying to get what they can for themselves and for their family or their caste or their race or whatever it is, um, which seems to be what's sort of happening in Sri Lanka, where, you know, you've got all of these similes you know, not wanting to, to give any power to the Tamils. And, and there were other minorities that were mentioned as well. I can't remember them, I'm sorry. Yeah, the way that he deals with it in the novel is, it's really enlightening. And I think that's one thing I like about novels like this is that it's very entertaining. It's got interesting characters, but it also really sheds a light on some historical events and the, the political culture of a country that we yeah. maybe don't know that much about and inspires you to go away and read a little bit more about it or to find out some more for yourself. I completely agree with that. I felt like it is a very heavy topic and a very interesting one. And the way in which the author managed to explore this with a with lots of comedy in it and with very likable characters, even though, even I did like, I do have to say, and judge me, uh, but I did like Mali a lot and the other characters as well. Like I, I felt like 
that's a skill and that's a talent like summarizing and portraying something as horrible as a civil war in a fun in a comedy way it's it's such a huge talent yeah the book uh, picked a winner this year <laughs> for sure <laughs> for three out of four of us anyway I'll ask the futile, futile question. Did we like it? Do you recommend it? I absolutely loved it. So I totally recommend it. Dive in with no expectations and just enjoy it. Mm. Yeah, what he said. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> read the read the Wikipedia page on Nursery Like and Civil Warfare and yeah. then dive in. <laughs> and dog ear, that, dog ear the page that has all the acronyms on it. That's useful. Yes, that's right. See, I was reading on e-reader, so I skipped past that, and then it was too uh, far gone. So I feel like highly suggest reading the physical bookmark. copy if you want to flip back to that. Um, yes, it'd be handy. So and the cover is beautiful. Well, good discussion so. today. Um, it is. It's such a wonderful mm, cover. Great cover. Mm. Well, it was nice hearing all three of you discuss that book today. Um, I'm sure it's given our listeners a lot to think about with lots of different topics um, about that book. So our last episode for the year, wrapping up our first year of books, baby, um, will be our top reads of the year, any recommendations we have um, and reflecting on our year of reading. So if any listeners want to partake, you can either DM our Instagram page at booksbabypod um, or you can feel free to email us. We'll put the email in the sort of chat box, um, sorry, text box on all of the different podcast uh, streaming services we're on. So it's there if you want it. Um, you can email us questions, comments about books we reviewed, um, what your top read of the year was, anything you like, really. So, yeah, I guess we'll wrap up with what book are you looking forward to reading next? Alo, you can start if you like. I am really looking forward to read Milkman by Anna Burns, which was the 2018 <laughs> Booker Prize winner. Uh, just I have had this book on my shelf for almost two or three years, haven't uh, read it. So I think after the amazing experience that I had with this year's winner of the Booker Prize, I should give it a go to this one. I'm also looking forward to reading another Booker Prize winner. I've got um, The True History of the Kelly Gang by Peter Carey Mm -hmm. has been sitting on my to-be-read pile for quite a while. Um, And so I, I feel like I should get to that soon. I've got, I picked this up yesterday, actually, at the bookstore when I was buying all of your books. So I <laughs> <my laughs> picked up something for myself as well. It's called The Mermaid's Tale by Li Weijing, which is translated from Mandarin, and it was the Taipei Book Fair Award for Fiction. It's the first Taiwanese book I've ever seen translated available in like a major bookstore. So I have no idea what it's about, but it has a really pretty cover. It's got like a disco cover. So I am looking forward to reading this one. I'm going to add that to my TBR. Um, I'm also reading a Booker winner, which is so odd that we're all doing that now. Um, Wolf Hole, Hilary Mantel, oh, has been cool. on my list for God knows how long now. Yeah. Nice. was between library books, didn't feel like reading them, saw it on my sister's shelf, and I was like, oh, I'm going to give it a go. So we will see how I feel about You're it. clearly on holiday. Oh, clearly. Otherwise, I would not be reading <laughs> yeah, this chunky it's boy. So scary. <laughs> Normally I'm like, nope, 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 save it for the summer. And now mm-hmm. I'm like, hmm, what shall I read? Chunky books. 
And that is us. Thank you for listening to Books Baby. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Feel free to connect with us on our social medias or we'll be in the description below on whatever streaming service you are listening to us on. And don't forget to like and subscribe. The book's baby theme music was written by Paul Smith and performed by Paul Smith and Ian Sykes. We acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the lands on which this podcast was recorded. We pay our respects to Indigenous elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land.